0: Ruth chapter one, let me uh, start by reading to you the opening verses and the first part of our passage for this morning. Ruth one, starting in verse one. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Pause there. We're immediately drawn into the story of God's covenant people living in a time of oppression, of strife, and a time for, sadly, largely, the nation of God's people, one of faithlessness. And we're introduced to the family of one man, Elimelech. You won't find him in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. He is not known as a standout or a stalwart. Not a surprise, in some sense, just by virtue of being born in this time, for this season in the life of the nation of Israel is largely without much faith. Elimelech lives in Bethlehem. Elimelech is from the tribe of Judah. Elimelech and his people would know, and the first recipients of this book of Ruth would know, because We're all told, back near the end of the book of Genesis, that Judah is the tribe of the future Messiah, the tribe of hope. That fact, in fact, explains why the book of Ruth is in Scripture. It is the tribe of Judah of whom it is said in Genesis 49.10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. The day would come when a descendant from this tribe would be one to rule over all the nation. And as the unfolding of God's revelation and as the unfolding of his mysteries throughout scripture will eventually tell, not only over a tribe, not only over a people and a nation, but over all peoples or over a people from all tribes and nations who have come to faith in God through that Messiah one day. But this household of Elimelech is not exactly a paragon of virtue, at least not yet. And still, out of this messiness will come perfect beauty. And therein, in part, lies our hope in coming to this book. Not because of Elimelech's perfection of his faith, or Naomi's uh, continued towing of the line of always doing what's right, or even Ruth, though she has... Much to emulate, not even she walks in perfection. But out of their mess messiness will come a beauty that is perfect. Out of their messiness, we will see Yahweh's providence and Yahweh's grace and Yahweh's rescue. And ultimately, that is our hope. For a messy people, a people living in strife and struggling ourselves, at times to do our best, or at other times forgetting our purpose, God never does. For now, though, Elimelech and his family, they're not home. They're not home yet, and that's what we'll find here in chapter 1. We'll find a journey that will take them away from the homeland, and then by the very, very end, bring them back to the homeland. And yet, their journey has just begun, because even then, they're not home yet. First, in our passage this morning, we see an unsteady choice and an aimless life, an unsteady choice, an aimless life. Elimelech and his family will leave the land of promise, and by all accounts, they will instead head for the land of compromise. The problem is given right there in verse 1. Now, it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. No doubt this is serious well, the crops aren't doing too well this year, but that's all right. We'll just head down to the supermarkets. It's okay. We'll just go and pull whatever's out of the walk-in freezer, right? They didn't have these storehouses. They didn't live with such luxury of a margin that many of us might, and they didn't have the resources at their disposal. So for the majority, they just barely made enough to survive and maybe to get a little bit ahead if they were particularly blessed. So a time of famine was serious. But for the people of God, regardless of the duress of their day, God has made promises and he will always be faithful. The family, though, instead of turning to the Lord, of seeking the Lord, instead chooses to leave, to leave this land of promise, to leave this place that was personally selected by God for his people, the place wherein their blessing should be found, if they would but turn back to him. They choose to wander. They choose Moab. And a certain man of Bethlehem, verse 1 again in Judah, went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. Moab is, for Limelech and his family, at this point, the promise of safety. Moab holds for them the promise of provision. But the reality is it's a lie. The question for us is, what are our Moabs? What are those places that might seem attractive, that seem to promise for us safety or provision, but ultimately can't provide of themselves? We know that this is probably not a great choice that we're seeing here. Not because the the narrator comments on it. It'd be a lot easier if the writer of Ruth would just come right out and tell us, and Elimelech shouldn't have done this. But I think all the signs are there for the first readers and for us as well. You see, Moab is really not a pretty story. The origins of Moab where the nation came from was through a child that came out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters when they got their father drunk and without his knowledge chose to sleep with him. That's not exactly an auspicious beginning. Then during the time of the Exodus, while Israel was traveling through the wilderness and making their way with little margin in their own lives, they asked for a shortcut through the land of Moab, but the Moabites, the brother nation of Israel, refused for them to pass. And then there was that situation with the donkey, if you'll remember, and a guy named Balaam who rode upon it. Balaam was a world-famous necromancer. He was a, a man who could do, uh, had wonderful knowledge about the future and could conjure up the secrets of the gods, or at least it was so believed, and his reputation had far preceded him. And so when the Moabite king became afraid of the marching Israelites, he reached out to Balaam and said, hey, come to my land and I have a job for you. I will hire you at great cost to curse a people for me. Again, not exactly an auspicious relationship between the Moabites and the Israelites. When the cursing didn't work, the king of Moab and Balaam himself got a little bit smarter. And they actually did find something that did cause the Israelites to stumble because the women of Moab began to infiltrate and seduce and draw away the Israelites from Yahweh. Numbers chapter 25 lets us know about this. By the way, because of all of these events that happened between the Moabites and the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy later on, God tells through Moses, the nation, that no Moabite should be allowed to come into the temple For worship, they were to be excluded. Whether or not that was an absolute prohibition or there was some path of proselytism that they could come to be a good Jew believing in Yahweh, I don't know. But the command is right there in Deuteronomy 23. Well, you get the picture. And there are other hints that we'll find as well. The language that's used here for the taking of the wives by the two sons, the two Moabite wives, is not the normal word for marriage. It uh, is almost always in the Old Testament used, I think, eight or ten times uh, used of either 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 an incestuous relationship or an illegitimate marriage. It just the whole thing hangs under a cloud. So you see, the problem is not really ultimately a famine. The problem is not really the weather. The problem is a problem in their relationship with God. And in fact, the famine is just the symptom. Because an Israelite would know when famine strikes the land, because they stand under a covenant with God, Leviticus Leviticus chapter 26, Deuteronomy chapter 28, that a famine in the promised land was a sign of judgment, that a people had turned away from God. And would it be likely that the nation would find itself under judgment at such a time? Well, If you're there in your printed Bibles, there's every chance it's on the same page. At least it is for mine because Ruth starts on the right-hand side and Judges ends on the left-hand side. You can look at the last verse of the book of Judges which summarizes the nation in that day. Judges 21-25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so there were continual, continual judgments upon the land because of the people doing what is right in their own eyes. Now, our nation has no covenant agreement with Yahweh. He owes us as a nation nothing per se, no particular promise. Rather, he has a promise to the remnant of his people in every land. And for the sake of a remnant, he may choose to bless a nation. But I think Judges twenty-one twenty-five, if the scenes I have seen just this last week not because this week was special, but because this week was typical. If just the scenes I've seen of this last week are any indication, we are very much a people like Judges twenty one twenty five. Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. And so what will be the case for the people of God? You see, the problem is not the famine or the weather. The problem is where they are at with the Lord. They're not home yet. Though the passage then doesn't come right out and say it, it seems to be rather clear for all the reasons I've mentioned that Elimelech and his family are making a bad choice. Yes, there may be a time that we may need to turn away from something which in God's providence has been a gift to us, and there may be a season he may call us to it. But I think if it was God's guidance away from the land at this point, if it was his call that they were responding to in obedience then I think there would have been some mention of seeking after the Lord or some mention of a word of God to do what otherwise, for any, actual, any normal Israelite, would seem like disobedience. The human heart is prone, isn't it, to go looking for blessing in the wrong places, especially in seasons where life gets hard. Lord, I thought you promised a blessing. Well, he did. He had a covenant with these people, but he also promised a cursing. (laughs) And he did that out of his love to call them back home. When you leave the place of blessing, I, because I love you, will not leave you to wander. I will not let you to go at your own direction and under your own guidance. I will make it difficult even, if necessary, to call you back to me. And that too is God's grace. What are the results, by the way? Another indication. This is, I think, not God's path of blessing. The results of this choice are death, right? Verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left with her two sons. She's now a widow with two unmarried boys. But there's still hope because they can carry on the lineage of the family and provide for their mom. They just need to get married, and they do. But verse 5, Then both Malon and Chilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. What is the path that the family is set on? We see its end point here is death. Thankfully, God's story is not done, though Elimelech and Malon and Chilion's are. But his purpose in all of this, even if their choice was not his perfect will— He and his providence still has a better plan. And he is so not done with them. But I want you to notice this unsteady choice. What path does it set the family on? Uh, Look again in verse 2. Here's the description of the family. Uh, No one is dead yet, but here they are in the land. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, the names of his two sons, Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah, Now, they entered the land of Moab, and they remained there. It's not the strong Hebrew word that means they dwelt there. They inhabited there. No, it's rather the very vanilla, boring, they existed there. That's translated remained. Hmm. What was their plan, by the way, in the beginning? Look back up to verse 1. Middle of verse 1, a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to do what? Sojourn. In the land of Moab. Initially, his intention, because he knew the place to be is in the land of promise, trusting God, seeking his face, even when there are difficulties. And so we will go. It it might be a compromise, but it'll be a small one. We'll, We'll go to Moab, but just for a little while. It's just temporary. We're just strangers. We won't really put down roots. So we find them there how long? We're told, right? A decade. And we find them, in the meantime, just existing there. This is where I think we get the idea of an aimless life. It seems like they have just forgotten what the original plan was. We're never told that they they make an active choice. You know what? I like it so much here, and the trees are lovely. I think let's put down roots, and this is where our children will have children. We'll stay here forever. No, they just stayed because they were just existing. It's as though they had forgotten their purpose, and they just found themselves here, and the status quo was just a whole lot easier than anything else. And so they continued it. Now, that might not seem overly bad, and I might, you may think, be reading too much into it, but notice they did make an active choice at one point. Look at verse 3. Naomi's husband died. She was left with her two sons. That's a pretty significant event in the life of the family, right? It's just mom and the two kids, and what are we going to do now? How are we going to survive? Presumably, they have extended family back where? In Bethlehem of Judah. They have people. They have a culture. They have a community. And they have the promise of Yahweh himself to provide for them in the land. And yet, still... At this tack point of life, they make an additional decision. We might say of Naomi initially, she didn't have much choice. Elimelech, the patriarch of the family, led them away. But at this point, it's not Elimelech's decision. It's hers and the boys. And they stay. And here they take the Moabite women as wives. A questionable choice. Here, Naomi and her sons had a choice. There again is no mention of prayer or faith. There's not even mention of a purpose. There's not even mention that they, they made an active decision to do this. They, I believe, were just going along aimlessly. Drifting. How about you? Where are you today? Do you feel like your life with the Lord is drifting? Not that you've made an overt, rebellious decision to hold up your hand to God and say, you know what, God, I've seen your way and I just don't want it so much as you find yourself in a place where you know you're just not home, not in any sense of blessing, not home in the sense of nearness and sweetness to God, not home in the sense that you're seeing the Lord in his mercies, answering your prayer, interacting with you and guiding you. Maybe just maybe you're drifting and maybe it's because somewhere you made an unsteady choice and then just got comfortable with a new status quo, not because you consciously chose to, but you just passively ended up there. Maybe you've slowly gotten there step by step. Maybe ubiquitous distractions in your life and in mine have drawn you away from seeking after the Lord and remembering where our life is truly found. And so after two or three hours of scrolling on your phone, you find yourself just dull and drifting. I can Sometimes I do. Or maybe instead you let your downtime be purposeful. You put energy or purpose, at least, to letting it refresh you. Letting it minister to you. Reading a book on prayer. This was, I don't know, a year or so ago. And one of the comments was made. It's a contemporary book. And it's saying one of the problems for the Christian life today is a a newfound challenge the battle has always been there spiritually but it's taken on a new form in our generation and that is that the primary place for spontaneous prayer in talking to our father throughout the course of our day is in the in-between spaces it's in the down times that we're just bored or we're not invested in some other conscious thought and so we just allow our minds to drift and naturally we look around and we may turn our eyes and our thoughts upward and so we pray but phones have done away with all of that fairly well. Unless we will actively choose to let ourselves be a little bored. Let ourselves consciously rest and be refreshed and find the Lord seeking us. Are you drifting? The Lord takes us through hardship on purpose to draw us deeper into himself. I think that would have been his purpose for this family to seek his face in this way but when we compromise then we set ourselves adrift on trackless seas and we let ourselves wander on the other hand you may be going through strife today and you might be thriving you might say you know what frank you're right i don't know that my life has ever been more challenging and more difficult than it is right now but i don't know that i've known the nearness of god as good as i do today because he'll take us through hardship to deepen us in him, and he's faithful to meet us there. Maybe today you're choosing the promises and not the compromise. Maybe today you're choosing to seek him, and you're making a point not to drift. In this life, it will be a battle because we're not home yet. But the believer is headed there. And thankfully, Naomi and the boys are headed there. The daughters-in-law are headed there, but the believer knows that there is a pilgrimage. By the end of verse 5, the father and the boys, their pilgrimage is over, but for Naomi and the two girls, theirs have just begun. question for you, friend, is where are you today? Most of all, from this passage, we would urge you to consider, does your life even have a purpose or were you born drifting and will you die aimless and wandering? Because the whole book of Ruth is here because God is going to track for us how he's going to give the world a Messiah through the lineage of the women mentioned here. Because he has a purpose to seek you out and draw you into that. But you will die in verse five unless you know that Savior. And he calls to you today in your drifting. He calls to you today in whatever hardship. And he uses it to press into you the reality of your need for him and his goodness. Have you been found? Do you know the one who leads you home? Not not even just ultimately after death, one day in the future and for all eternity. But believers know that that will happen one day because we get to experience it every day because we have one who draws us out of our distractions, who brings us back home. We're not home yet, not fully, but we have a home in him every day. Friend, have you ever been willing to turn to the Lord and call him your home and say, though everything else be taken from me, let me remain in you? If not, then maybe today is that day. Receive his call to return because he, your creator, is the only home. The only home you can ever truly have. Call on him. Well, Yahweh in his grace does not leave Naomi and the girls here. But now his grace will enter into. Well, it's already been there, but it will show itself in the story. What we see now is God's enduring grace calls us to repent. God's enduring grace calls us to repent and if you want, repent and return if you want to fit that in. Although the road might not be easy. The road of returning home, especially after we've compromised, will probably involve some, some admission of our shortcoming. It may run against the grain of our pride, but it is always best to relent and stop fighting and let us be drawn home. I want you to notice three Themes in this passage. Let's read it first, starting in verse six. Then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in in the house of your husband. And she kissed them. And they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope. If I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you. For the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, and here she's speaking to Ruth. Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse. If anything but death parts you and me. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said no more. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem and When they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest i want you to notice three themes of this passage first i want you to note with me and revel in the signposts of grace there are two of them the signposts of god's enduring grace what does naomi hear while she is still there in the land of compromise while she is still there in in an aimless drifting place yet god in his grace reaches to her and the message comes to her Back in the land of Judah, there is bread. Verse 6, she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. By the way, it's ironic in the original because the word Bethlehem, Beit Lechem, means the house of bread. And they ain't got any. But the Lord is just about to restock the shelves. And she hears the blessing has been poured out. And the land is fertile again. Notice that she doesn't just hear that the famine is over. She hears God has visited his people. Now, if we were to track through the book of Judges, which is the season of time in which the book of Ruth takes place, we know why that is. Because within the book of Judges, there is this continual circle that takes place, the cycle of Judges. The people turn away from God, and in their complacency, they begin to worship other gods, and they forget him. God leads them into oppression and strife, and then they repent and cry out and ask for rescue, and God, in his mercy, every time sends a rescuer. He raises up a judge, and the judge comes and conquers whoever is their oppressor and brings them into peace and brings them back to God, and there's rejoicing again, and it probably lasts for that guy's lifetime, and then he dies start the cycle all over again. Probably in these 10 years, they've gone through the bottom of that cycle where they've been in duress, cried out to God, and now he has sent a deliverer. So what we know from the book of Judges is that back in the land of Judah, there has been what? Repentance. Question, as I read this passage, and hopefully I didn't give away any hints, did you happen to catch the most repeated word in the entire chapter? Or the most repeated idea. Probably not because I tried not to give it away. It's the word return. Or turn back. It's used a dozen times. In the chapter. And the same Hebrew word for return. Is also in other contexts. The same Hebrew word. For repent. And that is the question that dominates chapter one. Naomi. And now the daughters-in-law. Are not home yet. But the question is, will they be? Oh, there is returning and there is returning and then there is don't return with me. And then there is one who chooses not to return, but instead returns. And then the other who does return and then the two return. And the question is, will they return? That's that's how in a literary sense we're to read. Ruth chapter one. And so the question is, would Naomi return? You see, there's this profound grace shown to the people. And Naomi, who is outside the land of promise, standing in the land of compromise, is wooed home by the promise of God's grace, calling her to repent, calling her to return. But it will take a bit of reckoning on her part with her own choices. It will take maybe a little bit of embarrassment to go back home. To the people who stayed through it all, not that they were paragons of virtue either, but at least they stayed. And Naomi will take on some responsibility in the passage we'll find, but she'll also choose to cast blame. In fact, in the worst place, she tries to blame God. What we'll find is Naomi is a conflicted woman, and it is the grace of God that has recorded that for us. You don't get to come home when you get it all together and you get perfect. (laughs) You just get to come home because you see it's the only place that you belong. Lord, I'm so like Naomi. (laughs) We'll see more of that as we go. But we resonate with a conflicted returner. We resonate with her in understanding she's been through a lot. She's genuinely suffered. But she's also party to the strife that she's experienced. And both sides of that will show. In the end, the Lord will superintend even these steps that she will take and even use her mixed faith throughout all of this and the imperfect decision by her and her husband and then her boys to bring her home and to do so much more. Naomi heard in the land of Moab That the Lord had visited his people. Friend, you're living in the land of compromise if you're not following Christ. There in the land of Moab, can you hear that God has visited his people? Because he sent them a savior. He came himself personally to dwell among them, to take upon their sin, to suffer their insults, tortures, their death, and eternal punishment so that they could return home. God's enduring grace calls us to repent. If you've never turned away from your sin, admitted your need, and turned wholeheartedly to God, then hear this today. God has visited his people. Friend, will you be among them? Will you return home? His grace is so much greater than your compromise. His enduring grace is so much more powerful to call you home regardless of how far you've traveled and how much you've rebelled to bring you to him, and that's why Christ died. The first signpost of grace is found there in verse 6. The second and the most profound one in the whole chapter, really the climax, is the grace found in Ruth's loyalty, right? Look again, verse 16. Do not urge me to leave you or turn back. There, by the way, is the word return. Do not urge me to leave you or repent from following you, Naomi, Ruth says. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I'll die. There I'll be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse. If anything but death parts you and me. Ruth says, my commitment my loyalty, Naomi, is you. These words, by the way, though the context in Scripture is not a marriage. It's not between a man and a woman in the covenant of matrimony. But these words are used sometimes in a wedding. And they're, and they're really quite fitting. Because, in fact, what Ruth is doing here is really making a covenant. She is committing herself unilaterally to a covenant With Naomi she doesn't just say man I know it's been tough for you mom why don't I go back with you at least until you get settled at least to help you transition she says I renounce everything else and I am with you and then after that she calls five things that are Naomi's to be her own your lodging is mine your people are mine your God is mine your death is mine your burial is mine everything from beginning to end Ruth says, I am now party to in whatever way you are, because I covenant myself to you. And then at the end of it all, she seals it with an oath. She calls down a curse upon herself, were she to break her oath to Naomi. These are profound words and fitting for a marriage covenant. Here they're found in the sweetness of a devoted friendship a daughter-in-law looking at her mother-in-law and saying, Mom, I'll never leave you. Nothing but death will tear us apart. And grace is all over this passage. Because Naomi, who will say in just a moment she has nothing, doesn't realize what she has. Naomi, who feels like, and we can understand it, that God has been against her, and everything is stolen away, doesn't realize that she's been given something that is extremely rare in this life. It's a good passage to ponder about friendship. Do you have people that you're devoted to like this or them to you? You might not have cause and nor might it be right to say, look, I'll die where you'll die. <laughs> Our relationships is some in some sense are in God's hands. But the Lord honors this kind of faithful commitment in all manner of relationship. At least if it's an honorable one, he honors it. I want you to notice something else tucked away here. Look at verse 14. Orpah is really the foil to Ruth. Orpah and Ruth both say, No, you know, Mom, we want to go with you. And then Naomi three times will say, look at her command, verse 11, return, my daughters. Verse 12, return, my daughters. Verse 13, know, my daughters. So Orpah goes, ah, okay. And we get 14. They lifted up their voices and wept again. This is the second time. This is a repeat of verse 9. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. And the understanding in context is it was a kiss of greeting or a kiss of salutation or goodbye. She kissed her goodbye. And left with tears. And now here it is. But Ruth clung to her. Can you think of anywhere else in the early books of the Bible that maybe clinging is used? Genesis two twenty four. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. Same word. What Ruth does with Naomi here is the exact same thing that God says is what a husband and wife are to do for one another in their commitments. So what a beautiful thing that she has here, this covenant relationship with her daughter-in-law. Ruth will be her great rescue, but she doesn't know it. Not yet. Signposts of grace. Second thing I want you to notice is I want you to see how Naomi is buried under grief. Naomi can't see it yet. She doesn't recognize it because she's buried under grief. And this is what grief and hardship can do to us. And we can resonate with Naomi. And we're grateful because Naomi doesn't have to be perfect to sort of get it right and for God to be merciful. So there's hope in that. But notice how buried she is. Look at 13. Notice where she turns her accusation. Would you therefore wait until children were grown? She's pleading with the girls. Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Literally in verse 13, she is saying, my bitterness is greater than yours. Those are the literal words. That's why later she'll ask the ladies to call her Mara. Naomi means pleasant. Mara means bitter. Don't call me Naomi anymore, she says. She tells the daughters, I have more bitterness than you. Do the daughters have bitterness of, of experience? Yes, they do. They've lost their husbands. And yet she's not wrong to say it's even more bitter for me because I lost my husband, too, and both boys. Man, that, that's, that's a completely acceptable statement. But that's not where she ends. Thirteen, the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. She sees the Lord as the cause and she becomes the accuser. She goes on and makes the Lord her adversary, 20 and 21. When she goes back and she meets the ladies back in Bethlehem, do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara for the almighty has dealt very bitterly with me for charges she levels against Yahweh he has dealt bitterly 21 pardon me 20 21 I went out full but the Lord has made me empty why do you call me Naomi the Lord has witnessed against me that's the third and the Almighty has afflicted me she sets herself up as the adversary of God because she feels God is her adversary at this point are those emotions understandable Absolutely. But to call out and say, God has done me wrong and to charge him with doing evil. Oh, she's flirting with great danger there. Buried under her grief. I don't think it's... It's inappropriate for us to read these words and resonate with them at times and say, Lord, I felt exactly like that. Lord, thank you that you get me. Thank you that Naomi, one of your people at some point in history, got me. This is why we read the Psalms, because they they speak our heart language back to God. But the signs of grace are huge in this passage, and yet it seems she's missing him because she's so buried under her grief. Do we miss him? Because the grace of God endures. Would that we had eyes to see it. By the way, one other statement she makes that I think also gives a picture of her, her wrong perspective at this point. What does she say in 15 to Ruth about Orpah? Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Why did Orpah return? Well, because Naomi told her four times to go back, Right. So if Orpah returned and went back to her gods, at least those are Naomi's words, then we have, one of, we have one of two choices. Either Naomi is party to being very subjective when it comes to the worship of Yahweh. You understand that's a bad thing? Hey, why don't you just go back and worship your gods? Because I'm going to go back, and I'm going to go back home and go worship my god. If she is party to that and she sees it that clearly, that doesn't speak greatly for her. Or maybe instead, it's her own capitulation of understanding. And she's not true in her faith to Yahweh. You see, in that day, it would be understand by the peoples of the ancient Near East. If you live here, you're part of this land, and that land has a God, and those people have a God. And so the people in Moab worship Chemosh, and that's their God. And if you live there, that's just what you do. You worship him, and you're his people. So maybe she didn't overtly send Orpah back. But maybe she is capitulating in her mind. "Eh, She'll be back there worshiping her gods. It's just as good. I offer it to you not as a final understanding. I'm not certain, but I just know the language there doesn't bode well. Would that Naomi had said. Orpah and Ruth. Come back with me. To the people of Yahweh, to the land of Yahweh and the worship of Yahweh and come and see the glories that he gives to widows, to the broken, to the outcast, to the foreigner, to the stranger. Come with me. Would that she might have said that. Or would that she might have said, may you depart back to your people in peace. But if you go, may you go under the hand of Yahweh, daughters. May you go as daughters of the Most High God, trusting in the one whom you have come to know and have heard from me. Wouldn't it be just different if we'd had something like that? Orpah's gone back to her gods, Ruth. Why don't you go do the same? Buried under grief is a theme throughout the passage, and it's understandable. Lastly, then comes the question for Naomi, and it's where the passage will end. Will Naomi again receive the gifts of God in her life? Will Naomi again receive the gifts of God in her life? The book of Ruth is a story, and like all great stories with a great plot, there is a great tension. And chapter one has just barely introduced the tension. She who began full ends empty. Are we talking about food? No, because when she comes back to Bethlehem, she comes back to food, right? But it's then that she says, I'm empty. And why is she empty? Not because God is not sufficient. But she's buried under grief. She can't see it. She can't receive it. She can't accept it. Will she again receive the gifts of God in her life? I think there's a positive hint in verse 8 that maybe she will, and it would encourage us to hope. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. There's a glimmer in Naomi. She sees in her two daughters-in-law the chesed of God. You know that word? I think you might. Because the word in the middle of verse eight, when she says, may the Lord deal kindly, that's the word loving kindness. She says, the two of you, my daughters, have showed kind covenant faithfulness to the dead and to me. In other words, to your husbands and to me, you've been faithful wives and faithful daughters. What do we see in that? Naomi sees the gifts of God. Even as she urges them to go back home, she's asking a blessing for them. Go back to the home of your mother. Why mother, not father, by the way? That's a very interesting thing. Probably because she's anticipating that that will be a temporary move back to the home of their new husband. And she gives them her blessing to remarry. Go back, find new husbands, find rest, she says, and know Yahweh's covenant loyalty. That's at least what she says. That she wants, and she sees that God has shown her covenant love. Will she again receive the gifts of God in her life? We hope. But there are a couple other signs, not as good. Remember verses sixteen and seventeen, where you have this mind-blowing commitment of loyalty from Ruth to Naomi. It it, it is got to be in the top whatever number of places in all of Scripture for the most faithful expressions of love from one person to another, of of commitment wholeheartedly from one to another in all of Scripture, Old or New Testaments. How does Naomi respond to it? We're told in verse 18, she stops talking to Ruth. That's what it says. When she saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she talked to her no more. That is a pretty cool response, isn't it? For such a warm devotion of loyalty. I, I don't think everything Naomi feels in that moment is captured, nor does it need to be, but the point is made by the narrator. Naomi's not fully embracing it, or we would have more here. Naomi's attentions are still somewhere else, she's still buried. We also get the idea from the way she responds to the Bethlehem ladies in the middle of uh, verse 21, the beginning of verse 21, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Question, if you're the daughter-in-law standing next to mom and she says that, how do you feel? Hi, this is Naomi, I'm chopped liver. The gift is right there. In fact, the beauty of the passage, the, the divine irony of the passage, is the one thing that at this point, at least by her words, Naomi accounts as a zero is the single thing that will make all the difference. Will she again receive the gifts of God in her life? There's hope in verse 22. Naomi returned. And with her, Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Two notes of hope, a young woman named Ruth, and a harvest. And those two things will carry forward the rest of the book. The question for Naomi is, will she receive those gifts of grace that God has right before her? And so the question for you and for I as we come to the end of this scene for today is this. Will you this week see the gifts of God? Will you receive his grace? Will you embrace and enjoy? In fact, the author of Ecclesiastes tells us that the the gifts that come from God are from God. Duh. Wait, I'm going somewhere. But the ability to enjoy the gifts of God. The author of Ecclesiastes says the ability to enjoy. That's also a gift of God. And so the question for you and for me is, will we receive those or will? Or will our pride be too rough a road to travel? And to admit, you know what? I'm wandering. I've compromised. I'm at a distance. It's not my fault. It's their fault. It's his fault. It was my husband who led us here. It's your fault, God. Or will we receive the gifts of his grace and see them as so much greater than the pride in our lives. So much more worthy to be able to count it as our hope than anything we could ever offer in return and in repentance. Ruth is the one whom Naomi should be speaking of as she returns. Guys, I've been through so much, but look at what Yahweh has given me. Look at my precious daughter who loves me, who is committed to me. She is with me, and no matter what we do, no matter where we go, Yahweh will provide, and he is good, and we will walk this road together. Wouldn't that be a different story? No, I came back empty. The one to whom Naomi owes so much gratitude, the one to whom you and I owe so much gratitude is the one that Naomi overlooks. And yet the Lord hasn't overlooked Ruth. She got a whole book named after her, probably for a reason. But let me tell you that reason, and we'll close with this. It's a beautiful story of covenant loyalty. It's a beautiful story of personal friendship and commitment. But that's not why it's in the Bible. Because that story could be found in the Book of Mormon. The reason why the book of Ruth is scripture is because the vehicle that carries the enduring message of this story is not Ruth's loyalty in and of itself. It's not the wonderful examples that we will see of obedience, of generosity, of of going the extra mile for the sake of one in need, of rescue and renewal, as powerful as all of those things are. That's not why the book of Ruth is Holy Scripture. The reason it's here is because of Jesus. For the ancient Hebrew, the book of Ruth is here because of King David. Because at the end of the book, we will find out that Ruth is in the lineage of the greatest king of the nation that they've ever had. But for us, David is just the beginning. Because David is in the lineage of our Messiah. And we are greatly encouraged when we see the mixed history of the people of God and their imperfections are laid out for us in black and white. And we come and see, but Lord, yet look at what you did through them. Look at the signposts of your grace that they missed. I'm glad I don't miss those. For God, this story is here because Ruth is the ancestor of Jesus of Nazareth. Thanks be to God for the loyalty of Ruth. That will be the seed that will change everything. And it will be good. Good. Good for Naomi. She has a loyal friend. Good. Good for the nation of Israel. For they will have a royal king. Good for us. Because the eternal son of God became a man and became our sacrifice Without Ruth's faithfulness, what of Naomi? What of the nation and the kingship? What of the Messiah? Just like these signposts of grace, so even here at the very end, taking in the whole story of the book and taking in the whole story of scripture, we say praise be to God for your surpassing grace to us. Do you know that you owe God thanks for a stubborn Moabite woman who wouldn't take go home? For an answer, four times. So the Lord calls forth your hope today, no matter what your situation or mine. Through a woman of severe devotion, he calls forth your hope. In the book of Ruth, we will find Yahweh's favor appears in domestic faithfulness and in interpersonal loyalties. It is these day-by-day mundane commitments that will carry forth the promise of a seed that God made back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 that he is fulfilling. Let me say that again. It's the daily faithfulness, the mundane interpersonal loyalties that will carry forth the greatest promise in all of Scripture, in all of history, in all of the universe to provide a seed will be carried forward just through the faithfulness of godly friends acting in faith to Yahweh, faithfulness of extended families acting in faithful ways. And this will carry forth his blessing. The Lord will be powerfully at work in the book of Ruth. We don't we don't see any slaying of giants. We we don't see any splitting of the waters. Not in this book. It's super boring in that sense. There's just a lot of people gathering grain. But the providential mercies of God and the daily covenantal provision are there in powerful ways. And the result is part of God's plan for salvation to bring us a savior. Amen. May the Lord help you and help me this week to not overlook the value of mundane covenant faithfulness in your relationships and in mine and in whatever the Lord has given you this week. Stand with me and let's pray together to that end. Gracious Lord, our God, we thank you for the beautiful example of Ruth, which is a model for us. We want to be more like her in this, in our commitment first and foremost to you, but also to those whom you've given us to be that for. Lord, we thank you for Naomi's even imperfect example. Both what she did so well in spite of her grief and even what she didn't do so well because of her grief, because of what that shows us of your grace. This morning, O Lord Jesus, we come to you because of chesed, covenant love that has bought us through a sacrifice, a man named Jesus and his blood spilled. And we thank you that your signposts of grace are here in our life this week. Grant us that we might see them. And as a result, we might love you more. And as a result of this chapter, we might thank you and be conscious that you are there with us in it. And as a result, be loyal as well. Be glorified through your people. Use your word to that end. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you. Thanks for being with us and have a great week.